we wanted to get into something that would provide generational wealth. And a lot of times the multifamily can't provide you with that because if their kids don't want to take over their property management company or their multifamily portfolio, it's done. But with the hotels, since we have an operator that will manage these hotels for us, who basically just grooms the next generation of management once their management retires, they will carry on managing the portfolios and our kids can get distributions even when we're not around. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Daniel Lin Nguyen. Daniel is a real estate investor in the Bay Area that focuses on acquiring multifamily properties in Cincinnati and syndicating hotel deals across the country. In this episode, you'll learn why buying properties out of state can dramatically boost your passive income and why hotels are one of the most lucrative investments. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Daniel, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and how you got into real estate investing. Yeah, Daniel Ling Nguyen. I got into real estate investing probably back in 2013. Well, from an early age, I wanted to be lazy and not work. And kind of as I grew up, I realized that passive income, that was probably the best way to not have the kind of academically accepted, you know, save $2 million or two and a half million dollars in the market growing at 6.6% after inflation. And then withdrawing 4% to live off of every two and a half million gives you $100,000 a year to live off for the rest of your life. That's like, the academic way. And I was thinking to myself, man, how am I ever going to save up two and a half million dollars? And if I want to live off of $200,000, I have to save up five million. And then that's what got me into real estate, realizing that you don't have to have five million dollars in real estate to make $200,000 a year in passive income. And the key part is passive, just not having to work for it. Because On the academic side, you have to work for it for, what, 40 years, 45 years to try to save up that money. And I just didn't want to work, actively work for it. So that's basically that idea got me into investing in real estate and starting my whole portfolio. And so I bought this, a loft, that was my first purchase, was a loft in Emeryville. And I actually got that idea from one of my friends that I used to work with at Wells Fargo, commercial real estate group, uh, as a kind of in finance and accounting. So his mom, she never made a whole lot of money, but she would move into a condo. She would basically just live there until she saved up for another down payment. She would move, buy another condo, and then rent the old one out, and then slowly save, 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 buy another condo, rent the second one out. And just keep on doing that. And now she's retired with, 
you know, multiple condos all paid off living off of those. And she never, I think she worked at Safeway or something like that, never made a ton of money, but it gave me the idea that you don't have to make a whole lot of money to have a great retirement and invest in real estate. And so I was thinking of that when I made my first purchase. And then as my kind of knowledge of real estate evolved and progressed, obviously my mentality and my kind of strategy and my plan for future investing changed into moving into um, the four unit property and then eventually doing the 1031 into Cincinnati, Ohio. And then, so I got the four unit property idea from Rich, Rich Kwok. And then another, I was at Climb Real Estate. I was a real estate agent at the time. And I was at one of the trainings at Climb. And one of the agents told me his client was cash flowing 3,800 bucks in his real estate investments in San Francisco. And then he ended up selling all that going to Atlanta, buying stuff, buying properties where his family's from and turn that 3,800 into 17 grand a month. And so I was like, shoot, I need to go out of state. And so that's, yeah, that's where my, that's where my out of state Cincinnati, which it's so weird that it's only a few years ago that I got introduced to Cincinnati and I have a huge soft spot for that city now because of what it's done for me. Yeah. I mean, I went there last year and I even made a little podcast about my journey to Cincinnati and it's actually pretty nice. It reminds me a lot of Oakland, how like apparently maybe just like 15 years ago, it was like, you know, one of the highest rates of crime, right? Like a lot of murders in this one area. And now that same area is like really, really bougie, right? Yeah. The over the Rhine. Exactly. Over the Rhine. Chris from Redix, you had him on the podcast. So he came with me one of my trips, him and his partner, John Bradley, they came and Chris was like, oh my God, I had no idea it was like this. I would totally live here. Yeah, it's popping. I was like, yeah, it's a nice, cool, hip area now. Yeah, and just like, you know, 20, 30 minutes on the west side, that is usually where like the more hood stuff is at. But, you know, stuff is pretty cheap there and people are still paying good rent. I I felt safe walking around the neighborhood. So, you know, something to look into. But let's go back to your story. So you bought your loft in Emeryville. You saved your money at your job for like a 20% down payment and just bought it as a regular purchase? No. So I actually had help from my parents. So I'm just going to say this right off the bat. I've been a lot more lucky than most. I'm not even going to be the first one to say this, but I'm definitely not completely self-made. I had a lot of help growing up. My parents were, they provided everything I needed. I graduated with no debt which a lot of people don't have the privilege of doing. I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. And then on top of that, they actually had enough saved up for my sister and I to go to both kind of private college, university, grad school, everything. My sister used up to basically go and she, she did the medical school thing and all that. And I only got my BS degree. So I ended up using the rest of it. Uh, my parents told me I can go ahead and use it for whatever I wanted, either start a business or whatever. And so I ended up using it to help me purchase my house in Mountain View. And basically with the equity from that a year after, I used that to put a, a down payment on the Emeryville condo. Oh, wait. So, so you bought your own place in Mountain View first? Yes. And then you did like a cash out refinance or did you sell your Mountain View property to them? By- I did a cash out refinance. Got it. And then I used that. I purchased the Emeryville loft. And then, so Mountain View was actually the house that I house hacked at. 
Got it. So it was like a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house in Mountain View? It was five-bedroom, three-bath. Holy crap. It must have been an enormous property. <laughs> it was, interestingly enough, it was a very weird property. It was perfect for me because there wasn't a formal living room, dining room. It was just one little space. And then it was originally a three-two. And the previous owners added two bedroom, one bath upstairs. So the upstairs bedroom was the ideal master bedroom. It was the largest room in the house, bay window looking out into the street, but it had no in-suite bathroom. So I ended up just taking the upstairs to myself, the two bedroom, one bath. And then I rented out the entire downstairs, three bedroom, two bath downstairs. Did you rent it out like piecemeal room by room or just like one whole thing? Yeah. So basically room by room got one of my friends, one of my sister's friends and somebody from Craigslist renting out the three individual rooms downstairs. And we basically just lived there like roommates. Everybody had access to the kitchen, garage, the backyard, whatever. And how long were you house hacking at Mountain View House for? I was there for four years. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm doing that right now. And honestly, it's probably one of the best decisions I made because once you have your cost of living basically taken care of, you can do a lot of other things without worrying about stuff. You can save a ton of money. And in my case, I ended up saving a ton of money and not buying toys with it. I ended up saving a ton of money and then putting it into my real estate portfolio. At the time, were you married? Not married yet. I uh, So Marissa and I got married about a year before we moved. So Marissa moved in. She ended up moving in upstairs with me. So it wasn't weird to have her moving in with all your roommates and everything too? No, I think at one point she was basically living there and then just going back to her apartment to like empty out her clothes and then get new clothes and then come back. That was basically, so she would go home maybe once a week to to kind of refresh her clothes and then come back. And so at some point her lease ended, they were raising the rent a ton. And I was like, you're already basically living here. Why don't you just move in? And so it was, she officially moved in and then she was living there. She had been there for two years by the time we sold that house. Very cool. So did you end up selling your Emeryville property or do you still have it right now? So I sold that. So Rich basically convinced me that the condo is the worst investment I can make. And he was like, my first purchase is a condo. A condo is a worst investment you can make. Ask me how I know. So what would he say? So basically he said that because he had his through the recession and then so many people in his complex foreclosed. And so a lot of the condos were going vacant. And because of that, they had to raise the HOA for the rest of the residents. And then obviously he said that when the economy goes back up, they're not going to lower the HOA. They're just going to make more money. And so I don't know if he still has it or not, but he kept it for a long time. And he said the HOA just kind of killed the rent and all that. So he convinced me to sell that and go buy a fourplex, which I did. That's smart. Because also for a condo, like if you, I think like uh, at a certain percentage of renters, you're not allowed to rent your condo anymore, right? Yeah, exactly. And then like, I guess my building, that building had a lot of the people that were kind of owner occupied. And so even the renters said that people seemed to know that they were renters and would give them a hard time about a lot of things like their dog and all that stuff. How were you able to sell an Emeryville condo and buy a fourplex in San Jose? I don't see how the numbers line up. I was able to do that because I didn't have any bills and I was able to save. Oh, got it. So it wasn't like you basically had extra money that you had to put in to buy that fourplex, right? It wasn't just... Yeah, I had to throw in a little bit of extra money on top of all the money from the condo. And then it was actually 
Paige and Lana who listed and sold my condo. That's awesome. So how did you even know all these people? You know, we're all pretty well networked together, but this was back in what, 2014 or something like that? Yeah, so 2000, around 2013. So in 2013, I was in mortgage. And then I went from a firm in Los Altos. And then I went to a firm in San Jose. And then I started going to the ARIA events to network with agents and try to get referrals for clients and whatnot. And then I met Rich and Lana at repeated ARIA events. And then I started bonding with them. And then Paige moved here from uh, Sacramento. And then I got to know her because she was, uh, I was flipping with Lana and then her and Paige were partners. So we all would kind of get to know each other. And then when we stopped flipping, I became an agent and I worked, he took me under his wing as his kind of personal protege. And so I was around Rich, Lana and Paige a lot. That's very cool. Yeah. I forget that they're all like connected like that. And actually I just joined Aria too. Oh, nice. Nice. Official membership since December. Yeah. We went to like a, a holiday party and they, got me to sign up so yeah i uh, stopped going when i moved to uh, san francisco because a lot of the stuff was in san jose and i just don't want to do that commute exactly so tell me about that san jose fourplex like what did you get it for and what was it renting for at the time i kind of feel bad talking about this sometimes because it's like trying to separate the tenant from business you know and so i bought the fourplex for 1.315 and then I was able to get uh, recycle all the tenants. I, I remodeled everything. And this was literally right before they passed the whole just cause, the just cause eviction, which I kind of feel bad saying it, but I mean, it is what it is. That's kind of have to, I mean, you want to be nice to people. So that basically means that before this passed, you could evict them for whatever reason you wanted. Now you can't because of just cause eviction, right? There has to be a reason. Exactly. So basically, back when I did it, you can give them a 60-day notice, no questions asked, or you can give them a 30-day notice and inform them of all their options for housing and whatnot, whatever the other options they were for trying to stay or whatever. So we, we elected to do the, the 60 days. And then uh, I remodeled everything, new tenants in at market rents. And then even with the new tenants in at market rents, I think I was cash flowing probably 1500 a month. Total from all four of the units, right? Yeah, all four of the units after bills, after paying all the bills and all that, mm-hmm. property tax, et cetera, et cetera. And then so once I went from the condo to the fourplex, I was thinking to myself, you know what? I'm just going to flip with Lana. I'm going to save up. And then once I have enough for a fourplex, I'll put another down payment. I'll buy another fourplex. And then my goal was to have four fourplexes kind of around what Rich was going for, what Rich had at the time. And then I was thinking, you know what, four fourplexes, I'll have about $6,000 a month passive income, which is amazing for a supplemental income. And then once they all paid off, then each of them would give me, you know, 10 grand a month. And then I'll have 35, 40 grand a month in passive income. And that'll be my retirement in 30 years. So that was my plan. And then my plan changed again. Well, the first thing that changed my plan, San Jose was progressively increasing the how strict rent control was. And I just kind of got sick of that. It was a headache and it was becoming a nightmare for landlords. And so I decided to get rid of the fourplex. And when I heard about my friend, his client going out of state, I decided that's what I wanted to do. So I started looking at potential out-of-state locations to do the 1031 at. And this is before you moved to SF, right? I sold the fourplex after I moved to SF. 
Okay. I want to go to your SF in a little bit because that's pretty interesting as well. But let's talk about how did you choose Cincinnati out of all the places that you want to invest in? Actually, it was a recommendation because I didn't know where I wanted to go. I didn't have any network anywhere. And so I talked to one of my friends. So my college roommate, his name is Matt Zacharias. He was my college roommate for a summer. And then we're still best friends. He was the best man at my wedding. And he also he's a financial consultant at Chase and he manages everything I've got there. And so he told me that his brother was investing in Cincinnati. His brother works for Goldman Sachs and his brother has always been kind of like a snare drum tightness with his money. So I was like, you know what, if Derek is investing there, I trust everything about Derek's financial situation. So I went and took a look at Cincinnati and one thing led to another and I ended up meeting Nate and Mike. Yeah. And so let's talk about that first property that you ended up purchasing at your 1031. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I went over uh, a little bit longer story, uh, maybe a few minute story. I basically, after Matt told me about Cincinnati, I just went on Redfin and I picked out, you know, four unit buildings, five unit buildings. I, I found an eight unit building I liked. And so I picked out four or five of those and I was like, hey, you know what? I'm going to buy these and then I'm just going to have a bunch of these in Cincinnati. I'll chill out with whatever, like 10 grand in passive income. I'll be happy with that. And then just kind of live my life, do do the realtor thing and as a supplement and I'll be comfortable. And so I went over there. So I cold called all the listing agents. Only one guy uh, responded back to me. His name is Dustin Crumpack. And then he picked me up from the hotel. So Matt was having a bachelor party. He was getting married. And so at his parents' house, which is 15 minutes outside of Cincinnati, Lawrenceburg, Indiana. So I ended up flying into Cincinnati a week early. Dustin picked me up the next day from the hotel. We went to lunch. We went to visit all these properties. A few of them I picked from Redfin I didn't like. And I told them, hey, I, I have to 1031. I have to spend all this money. Things I never say about material items. I have to spend all this money. So I told him that. And he's like, don't worry about it. I have a big network. I'll send an email out and I'll find you some properties. And so he sent an email out. The next day, his cousin replied, had a five unit property they wanted to sell. So Dustin picked me up, took me over there. I saw it and I was like, okay, this is, I love this one. This guy, like when we showed up, his cousin was picking up trash all over the property and everything was just absolutely pristine. So I made up my mind. I was like, I'm going to buy four, these four or five properties. And then Nate actually replied and he said, Hey, we have some buildings we want to sell. And so I basically thought, you know what, I'm just going to buy these four or five smaller properties. So I don't have to worry about anything. But Dustin was like, hey, why don't you just go check it out? So uh, the day after that, Nate and Mike picked me up. We were driving around Cincinnati and they were just looking around like, oh, we own that. We own this building. We own this entire block. We own this. We own that. I was like, oh my God, what am I doing with these guys uh, riding around in their car? And then they showed me the building I ended up buying. And then they showed me another building, a 17 unit building. And then that night I was still dead set on purchasing multiple properties and then I, I slept on it for a couple more nights and I, I kind of decided, you know what, if I want to go to the next level, I can't keep on sticking to these four unit, five unit buildings. I have to go bigger. So I ended up calling Nate up and telling him that I would move forward with a 28 unit. And that has been probably one of the best decisions I ever made. Yeah. And it's really cool that you have it like pretty much all to yourself. Yeah. I know a lot of people who invest in multifamily complexes, but it's always through like the syndication model, which is, you know, it works, right? But it's also really cool to have it like, nah, this is mine. I own all 20 of these units. Yeah. It's really nice to not have to worry about splitting the distributions or complicating things. 
like I said, I had help from my parents to, to start it all off with Mountain View and all that. And basically the rent that came in paid the mortgage and everything. But I also had a lot of help from just the real estate wave itself. The condo, not as much. The condo appreciated by about 50000 when I sold it. So I made a little bit of money there. But the fourplex was the one. I kept that for 18 months. I, so I bought it for one point three one five, and then I sold it for one point seven one five. so 400000 I sold it for in 18 months. And so that allowed me to go into Cincinnati with a sizable. And then on top of whatever small amount that I paid the principal down with, so it gave me a, a good amount to 1031 into Cincinnati with. And then when you go into Cincinnati, it's, it's kind of unheard of for a smaller local investor to come in with like 600, 700,000. I guess that's where it put me on par with Nate and Mike. So I guess our thinking was aligned in terms of money and the size of buildings that we were owning. So I think that was the first step to our partnership together going forward after that. Yeah. And so what was like the numbers on this 28 unit complex? What did you buy it for and what were they renting out for? So basically I purchased it for one and a quarter. So 1.25. Yeah. 1.25 million. So it's less than what you paid for your fourplex originally back in San Jose. Exactly. For 28 units. Yes. Crap. All right. And what's it renting out for? So I actually got that for a little bit more of a deal because Nate sensed that we had potential for a, a much longer term relationship. So he ended up giving me that building for a nine cap instead of an eight cap that the market was at. Mm-hmm. And so he essentially just gave me quite a bit of money. And it kind of shows his, his generosity and his forward thinking to think this potential future relationship is more important to me than just nickel and diming a buyer. So the beauty of Nate and Mike's system is that their property management company only caters to their buildings. And because of that, they are 100% full service. They go in and they pay the bills. It's not escrow, but they privately keep reserve amount for property taxes. And so with other property management companies, a lot of times they just send you all the rents and then you're responsible of going in and paying the bills yourself. But this is full service. The only thing that they didn't want to be responsible for was if they happened to accidentally pay the mortgage late, then they didn't want to be responsible for that. So the only thing I have to do is pay the mortgage. Mm. And then they basically just put the reimbursement into the rent check. All right. Very cool. But yes, basically I'm similar to Mountain View, just riding, riding the real estate way for that one. Cool. So let's go back to Cincinnati then. So for Cincinnati, after you purchased that first 28 unit complex, did you buy more properties in Cincinnati? Yeah. So I had some money left on my 1031 that I had to close out. And so last minute I told me and Mike, I was essentially like, dude, my deadline is coming up. I need to spend some money for this 1031 because I wanted to put down the full 650 on the 28 unit, but the bank ended up making the loan for larger than I originally requested. And so I didn't use up the whole 1031. And so I was like, oh shoot, <laughs> I still have a little bit of 1031 to use up. And so Nate and Mike were like, don't worry about it, we got it. And so they came back at me and they told me that they have a couple four units they can sell me. So I was like, all right, let's do it. So I bought those four units. That's so funny. It's probably the only time in history where you ever hear that, oh no, the bank gave me too much money for my deal. Yeah. And so the 1031 exchange company still had like a hundred grand of mine. And so I was like, oh shoot, 
So for those who don't know how 1031s work, do you want to briefly go over like the whole process of doing a 1031 exchange? Yeah. So I don't know exactly what the paperwork is because I've always just went with this company called Exchange Solutions in San Jose. They do everything for you basically for 800 bucks. And so they do the paperwork, they do all that. And so when you close on your property, in order to get tax deferred for your investment, you have to put 100% of that into a like-kind investment. And then the next like-kind investment, the same value or more, and you have to keep the same amount of debt. So if you, for example, if you owe 600000 you have to get a new loan for 600000 or more. And if you don't satisfy that, you can also put in some of your own money. So if you go and buy something, almost all cash, and let's say just get a loan of 300000 you would have to put in 300000 cash of your own money to make up for that debt that you eliminated. Mm-hmm. So that's just a way to tax defer your investment to avoid the immediate taxes for the gains that you just made on your building. So I ended up doing this, tax deferring it, and then, so not paying the tax now, it'll just accumulate for later. And then I went into this uh, 28 unit building. If I understand correctly, you have to also like identify your property you want to purchase within 45 days and then close within 180, right? Yeah, you have to identify the properties within 45 days and then Exchange Solutions actually gives you like a little list. You write down the properties, you give it back to them within 45 days. You don't have to actually eventually buy a property from there. You just have to do your due diligence and write down the property that you researched, the amount it is and all that stuff. And then they will actually sign that paper saying that you did identify within 45 days. And that's just kind of for tax purposes of having documentation. So they'll take care of all that for you. And then when you close your sale, the escrow wires all the money directly to them. And then when you go into contract and you need to fund the next purchase, you let them know and they wire the money directly to escrow. And so just to make sure everything is legal and done correctly. So if you had to purchase a property last minute and it wasn't on that 45 day list, Is that still okay or how did that kind of work? So it's still okay. The only thing they told me is that if I get audited, then they cannot verify that it was 45 days. Because the first time when I did the 1031 from the the loft to the fourplex, I did everything correctly, but I totally forgot about that sheet. And then so they told me that even though I did buy a property that I identified within 45 days, they cannot sign on it because I forgot to give it to them. Hmm. and so it is what it is all right cool let's just not well i guess the, the best practice is to always write it down but worst case worst case it's still possible to do right yes it's still possible to do i can still say hey, you know what I, I flew into cincinnati i ended up buying this property in cincinnati i flew into cincinnati within 45 days i you know bought the property that i looked at within the 45 days that i flew into cincinnati right. and so therefore it's it's i mean it's traceable right. but it's just You'd rather just be like, here, here's the paper and they'd be okay. Exactly. And so after that happened, did you buy anything else? No, I have not bought anything else. I've participated. So after Nate and Mike and I got to know each other, it took a little, quite like probably six, seven months before they were able to find a new deal because they were just like, I was dying to do a deal with them because I just wanted to build my equity and my ownership of properties. And so we ended up doing three deals together. And so I have equity in three deals with them that are not yet cash flowing. They're in the construction, they're remodel phase right now. So once those start cash flowing, everything will be even better. 
That's crazy. So you started participating with them in like a capital raise standpoint? Yeah, capital raise standpoint. I personally invested in a nine unit. Actually, it's in over the Rhine. There is an old cable car that runs around over the Rhine, a historical cable car. And one of the stops is literally right in front of our building. And that one is still, we have the HVAC in. It took us a while because it's historical to get the permits, but we have the HVAC in. We did a lot of repairs to the structural. And then I think the walls are all closed up now. And so it's just the going into the details. And we're anticipating having it fully stabilized in probably mid-2020. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it'll start cash flowing and that'll be a little bit more cash flow for me every month. Yeah, because from what I remember, you don't work anymore, right? No, I sit around and I basically am on the phone, on emails, in front of the TV, playing golf, doing whatever. And to me, doing this real estate stuff isn't really work. It's, I mean, real estate is one of my favorite hobbies. I mean, this is fun. I enjoy it too. You know, I, my job is to do podcasts too, right? I'm talking to you. This is fun. Yeah. And it's, it's all part of my, my favorite hobby of all is personal finance. And whether it's real estate, well, real estate is more of my hobby as a part of the personal finance because uh, Matt kind of takes care of all the money market stuff. I can't tell you the first thing about stocks or which stocks are good or what to buy or anything. I just kind of let him do what he's good at so I can do what I'm good at. Right. And so right now, are you basically just saving up the money you're making from your Cincinnati projects to then build up that capital nest egg to then put into more projects? I think as of right now, I am just basically living off the money coming from Cincinnati. I'm kind of almost double dipping the gains because my rent comes in and a little portion of that, I contribute my portfolio in the money market so that it can make more money even after the money comes in. But other than that, I'm just kind of just living my life. Just, I don't know, I guess people say you you should start spending your money at some point. So I finally decided to try that, see how the spending of the money goes. I also saw that you're now getting involved with Mike and Nate with hotel development, right? Yes, it's not quite development. It's essentially taking the same equation from our multifamily, the BRRR basically, but bringing it to the hotels. We've been doing the multifamily for a little bit. Mike and Nate have been doing the multifamily for way longer than me, and they're at a much higher scale than I am. A few things that are kind of bringing us to go into the hotels. Number one is the scalability. We want to scale into a billion-dollar portfolio, and to do that with multifamily just requires way too much time and energy. Nate and Mike just closed on a 346-unit portfolio last July, and I literally, Nate disappeared after they closed on that because he was just running around like a chicken with its head cut off, just new roofs on the buildings, buying like 700 toilets, I don't know, 400 bathtubs and supervising the installation of everything. And it's just crazy. And so when we bought our first Courtyard Marriott, Nate showed up and was like, oh my God, we have to put some mulch back here and power wash the outside. He's like, I never want to do a multifamily ever again. Yeah, it's a lower maintenance, right? Because like when you have a hotel, generally it's already very well maintained, right? You have your clean service come through every single day. I mean, that's why like right now I'm working with a group, you know, Evan, right? Evan Huynh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we're doing Airbnb strategy, but Airbnb is actually better than long-term rental because not only are you getting that higher, you know, daily rent, right? But also after every person moves out, you have a cleaning crew come in. So your house is always well-maintained. So I'm assuming it's the same. Another thing is that we wanted to get into something that would provide generational wealth. 
And a lot of times the multifamily can't provide you with that because with Nate and Mike's portfolio, and we talked about this before with Nate and Mike, is that once they retire, if their kids don't want to take over their property management company or their multifamily portfolio, it's done. There's nobody to carry on the business or anything like that. But with the hotels, since we have an operator that will manage these hotels for us, the operator being Commonwealth LLCs, they're a kind of a perpetual entity. They're a 1700 employee company who basically just grooms the next generation of management once their management retires. And so they will carry on managing the portfolios and our kids can get distributions once we retire or retire more than we are now. And it gets carried on even when we're not around. So that's the second reason we wanted to get into the hotels. And what we mentioned before, the efficiency of the hotel, part of it is also moving from, it's almost the same as saying, why do you want a four unit building instead of four single family houses? It's like, you don't want to have four tenants and have be responsible to replace four roofs at $10,000 a piece. You want to be responsible for one roof and have four tenants under it. Or my 28 unit building has three separate buildings with 28 units. So for 28 tenants, I'm not responsible for 28 single family houses or 28 roofs or 28 landscaping bills. I'm just responsible for three buildings. And that's the same with hotels is because this courtyard Marriott is actually the same square footage as my 28 unit building, but it's making, you know, 90 to hundred thousand dollars a month instead of right now, my 28 unit building is probably making a gross of 25, 26,000. So just the efficiency of the square footage that you have to take care of versus the gross income that's coming in. And because of that, it's so much easier to take care of because the reserves grow so much faster for the amount of work that has to be done. Yeah. And they're buying properties not necessarily in Cincinnati anymore, right? We're looking at all over the country for these hotels. We were looking at a hotel in Fort Worth, in Tampa, Florida, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Reno, Nevada, everywhere. Commonwealth is a nationwide operator. So wherever we go, they can handle. Are they also kind of helping you guys decide on what places to purchase? Yeah. So as of right now, all of our deals are being fed to us by Commonwealth because they're so plugged in to the market and the off-market properties that are kind of being advertised, the pocket listings per se. And so they probably go over close to 100 deals a month. And we're personally very picky about what kind of deals we come across. And I remember you asked me when we ate at Dapper Dog and went to Castro Fountain Mm-hmm. to get ice cream, you were saying, why are you guys, so typical syndications, you see the investors get 70% of the deal, the sponsors get 30, and why are we giving 30% and the sponsors are keeping 70% of the deal? I've heard people say that like, oh, the investors are bringing all the money, like they should get 70%. And I now know the answer to that. And it's because we're so picky about our deals and what we look for that when we find the deal we want, we go after it. It's such a better deal than a lot of deals that other people can find. For example, I met a guy that gave 75% equity to the investor. He kept 25% equity as the sponsor and they were giving their investors a kind of a 14 to 16% IRR. And we were able to give our investors a you know 19 to 23% IRR with just 30% of the deal and that's made 
it's because we just have much better deals. Right. That makes sense. And we know exactly what we're looking for. Yeah. And on top of that, I feel that it's just the environment right now. You know, investors who are specifically like, you know, real estate investors and listen to a lot of like these kind of podcasts or listen to like multifamily podcasts, they hear these numbers, right? They hear like 8% prep, 30-70 split from sponsor and investor. But if you talk to any other investor, man, you talk to anyone who's in like tech or whatever, they're like, oh, if I can get like 8% annualized, that's like a good return already. They don't know. They don't care about 15%, you know? Yeah, because all they know is the stock market. All they know is the stock market. And they think stock market is risky, you know? So you tell them, oh, you're backed by real estate, cash flow. Anything over the stock market by that much must be good. Yeah. I see on Facebook all the time, like advertising, oh, you get 8% and everybody thinks it's a scam. And it's so high. And I'm like, obviously you guys aren't real estate investors. Exactly. And the thing is, you know, not to throw shade on Mr. Grant Cardone here, but Mr. Grant Cardone, he has the same syndication strategy with multifamily units, but he's on a 35-65 split. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know, like that's already not on par, but he's just a good marketer that people enjoy it. Yeah. And we're able to do that because our last deal, I mean, we got in Columbus, Ohio, the cost of construction to build is about 150000 a key to build a hotel. We got in pre-renovation for a little bit under 45000 a key, and then post-renovation would be a little bit under 85000 a key. And so because of that, we're able to outprice any of the competition in the region. Obviously, we're not going to, the aim of the game is not to get 100% occupancy by dropping your price. It's about optimization. So it's about running at a, you know, like a high 60s to low 70s at a higher rate per room so that you can optimize the amount of profits you get versus expenses. Mm -hmm. But we underwrite our deals, assuming that another 2008 is going to happen. So that's, I mean, that's how we choose our deals. That's how we get our return for our investors and keep our investments as risk-free as possible. And that's why we don't close on a whole lot of deals is because we're that picky and we want to get into the right deals, not just the deal that's in front of us because we're excited. And what is like the typical purchase price for a big hotel deal? Like what you're looking at? So this one, we were all in. Columbus, Ohio was dirt cheap. It was a no-brainer. We were all in for about $12.3 million. And we were eyeing a embassy suites for $30 million. So that one fell through for various reasons. We had another one we were really excited about. And that one fell through for franchise agreement reasons. And then they just didn't want to renew the franchise because they were moving away from kind of sprawling hotels. They wanted to do go a little bit more vertical. And so the, the guests didn't have to walk as far to get to their rooms. And so they didn't want to renew the flag. And so we, we dropped out of that one. But the search is, you know, it always goes. We're always looking at new deals and just trying to find another uh, courtyard. Yeah. So for the 12.5 million, you said? 12.3. Yeah. So for the 12.3 million dollar deal in Columbus... How many units was that and how much did you have to come up with for the down payment? So we got pretty highly leveraged on that one. So we put our down payment was 1.7 and then we got 2 million in PACE and the rest was first position. So for those who don't know, what is PACE? Oh, so PACE is basically, it's a government quote unquote loan that covers your energy efficient remodels for the building but it doesn't act as a loan on your financials. It's more like a lien on the property that can be passed on to the buyer in the future, or we can pay it off depending on how it affects our cap rate. So basically, if we sell it, if you sell the hotel in 20 years and the pace is almost all the way paid down, but our payment 
because it's amortizing loan or amortizing by nature. Our payment is the same as it was it as it is today, and our balance is so low that it's better to pay off the balance to increase the NOI and、uh, increase the value of the hotel. But if we sell it off early in the term, then we're better off keeping the pace on having the new owners get their own pace and then、uh, replacing it because the proportion of what we have to pay off to the increase in NOI just doesn't make sense at a capitalized rate. In value, so it's just kind of strategic how you want to play with pace, but but in short, it goes on like a lien similar to property taxes, but it's amortizing. Yeah, it's funny because I heard about pace for single families. I didn't know they did it for hotels as well, and it's pretty cool that you can use that as part of your down payment as well, and that your first was still cool with that. You have to find a first position lender that would allow pace, and we actually ended up using because it was in Columbus, Ohio, just an hour fifteen from Cincinnati. We were able to find a local credit union that allowed us to use pace on top of the first position, right, to take down the hotel. So in total, you're probably putting down like thirty percent, including your down payment and pace. So if you consider pace to be not a down payment, we put down about fifteen. Yeah. So we're leveraged at eighty five percent, including pace. Right. Which is pretty good, and and your your first wasn't like a bridge lender or anything, right? They were charging like hard money lenders. No, the first was just a convention. It was just a commercial loan. Cool. And the great thing is, because we got the hotel all in for under eighty five thousand a key, a door, then we leverage eighty five percent of eighty five thousand a door, as opposed to the sixty five percent of one hundred fifty a door that would a regular developer would have to do. So. Even though their leverage at sixty five percent, they still owe more than us because of the pricing, the deal that we got, and so we were able to make it work. And that's what、uh, you kind of learn is that you can't pay attention to any one criteria in the deal. I sense it the deck for investors to a lot of people, and they're like, "Oh my God, you're never gonna make it. You're way over leveraged." And I was like, "Well, do you, do you want us to <laughs> do you want us to leverage sixty five percent of one hundred fifty k a door and owe more money than we owe at?" Eighty-five percent leverage. It's just about all how everything fits together.、Mm-hmm. So, what's the plan with that one? Did you guys sell it? No. So, we're in the process of doing the value add. We are currently in the process of submitting the architectural plans to the Marriott for approval for the remodel and the fifteen-year property enhancement package. Are you guys going to be the ones doing the construction, or are you going to sell off with the plans? We are actually going to do the construction. I think Nate will probably GC it because he's so close to Columbus. Okay. Then he'll just get his either his guys to drive up, or he'll get subs to do the work up in Columbus. And do you know if you guys need to get another like construction loan for that, or are you guys already funded? We are funded. Very cool. So we're good. We're good to go. Well, that sounds like a very exciting project. Congratulations. Yeah. So so far, what are like your main challenges right now? So the main challenges is just like anybody who comes up with a new product, not necessarily a new product, but it's new. Hospitality and hotels is new to most people. Who are thinking of getting into real estate? For example, you have somebody who has his job. They make some money. They want to invest in real estate. The first thing they think about is hospitality. Oh, it's not hospitality. Sorry, is about multifamily, right? So everybody is like, I want to learn more about multifamily and get into multifamily. So it's very rare because of the barrier to entry that I come across somebody that knows about hotels already. And so there's kind of a when I try to go out and, and meet with investors. A lot of times there is a little bit of an education phase to get people familiar with hotels. Most people, after they hear it, they say, "Oh my God, that's such a good idea!" But I just have to learn more about it before I can commit. 
And so it's kind of like the like a sports team doing the rebuilding phase. You just have to start from the beginning, and then once you get the ball rolling, then you get investors interested, and then it just kind of goes. And the first people you talk to, you start getting interested, and then the next people you talk to take a little bit more time. And so you have a little process of education. But uh, once you get the ball rolling, it should be a successful platform. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like you said, like hotels are a different beast. And it's generally a lot more expensive than multifamily. So people don't even consider it. They're like, wow, $10 million, $100 million buildings. I can't do that on my own. No way. But like you said, again, it's just the same as multifamily where you're just doing the birth strategy. You're buying a property, you're making it better, and then you're renting it out for more. Yeah, so you make it better, and then you do a cash out refi. Our equation is basically we purchase the property, we, we make it better, and it's so much easier to make it better because there's so many more line items that you can decrease, the expense line items that you can decrease in order to improve the NOI. There's a few more things that you can do to increase the revenue, such as marketing and advertising, and then start changing the different things you can do with the rooms and renting out of the rooms. But mostly it's making it more efficient in terms of expenses that really increases the NOI. And then you cash out refi at a capitalized value. Our goal is to do that within three to five years, and then we return all our money back to the investors. They retain equity in the deal, and then they have their money. They can reinvest in the next deal, or they can go on their merry way and uh, still continue uh, receiving distributions quarterly from the hotel. Nice. Very nice. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for your tips today. Do you have any final words that you have to give to our listeners who are maybe just starting out? Yeah, I would say definitely the best thing to do is have your money work for you. Don't work for your money. You can't do it instantly. The best analogy I always told people is you work 1x and you make 1x, which is your salary, and then you invest a little bit either in a syndication or or even you probably experience it in the stock market too. Your dividends and distributions, if you like to take them, you'd be working 1x and making 1.1 or 1.2x. And so you start building that secondary income. So if in real estate, so the key is just to be disciplined and make sure that you put your money into the investment into appreciating assets as soon as possible. I guess I can use myself as an example. I never bought a car over 20 grand or so until after I owned these rental buildings. And so just one step at a time. It seems like such a big task, but that's what I thought also in 2012. And I just kind of took advantage of snowballing one victory at a time, got my first condo, met Rich, got my first fourplex, sold it, had all this 1031, and eventually got into where I am today and still building. Yeah, you're super young in your career. So what's going to happen in 20 years from now, right? You'll probably have like even more, right? So start early. That's the goal. Very nice. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. How can people get in contact with you? You can get in contact with me via email, daniel at Nassau, the, like the city in the Bahamas, NassauInvests with an S dot com, N-A-S-S-A-U-I-N-V-E-S-T-S dot com. Daniel is spell, standard spelling. Yeah, if you're interested in the investing in the hotels, then I'm more than happy to send additional information, executive summaries, whatever it is. Perfect. All right, Daniel, thank you so much for your wise words of wisdom and thank you so much for your time. All right. Thanks, Sean. Thanks. All right. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. You can easily achieve financial freedom without needing a significant amount of capital if you start investing in real estate. Cash flow is king and you can typically get better cash on cash returns if you invest out of state in places like Cincinnati. Try to find good partners, like Daniel did, who can help you grow and mentor you in the business. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, 
Join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.